Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Many of you have heard me talk about our our midweek uh, Bible study we do over at the Three Rivers Mall. Um, just doing our best to to hang out at the mall and be cool. Uh, but we've we've been reading through the book of Ephesians together, and we were in Ephesians chapter four this week, and uh, we're we're reading through it. Paul's talking about the importance of unity in the body of Christ of all things. Of course, the the song and the prayer that we. The, prayer, the theme for these 40 days for fullness is out of Ephesians chapter 3. Um, but we came across this verse together while we were reading. This is Ephesians 4 verse 28. Uh, one of two verses featured in today's teaching. I'm a little self, self-conscious about the fact that today's teaching only has two verses in it. So, um, But you guys have all been reading your Bibles every day this week, so we'll, we'll forgive it. Uh, anyways, Ephesians 4 verse 28. Paul writes, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something youthful, useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those who are in need. And as we, as we read that verse today, uh, I think at times it's easy to, to feel like there's things you just don't need to say, right? There's things you shouldn't have to say. And you imagine Paul is writing letters to the churches and he has all these important things to say, all of these important issues to address, and in my imagination, the fact that Paul has to address stealing in the church feels like something he shouldn't have to say, right? That he had to take the time to write the words, anyone who's been stealing needs to stop. Please stop stealing. Find a job, <laughs> get to work, and be ready to share with others. Things that we would take for granted, things that we would think are normal. I don't think, I, I can't imagine. Now, maybe there's, maybe there's a scenario where this would happen, but I can't imagine that we would sit down and the elders would be like, James, you have got to do a sermon on not stealing because <laughs> the people in this congregation are going crazy. That's just, that's just, in our culture, stealing is accepted as wrong and it seems normal to us that that this would be something that we wouldn't need to say. In fact, if there was ever a verse that you didn't need in your Bible, this would be it, right? No stealing. I don't even, I got that one taken care of. I don't, I don't need that. Sometimes the things that we think of normal or the things that are normal to us are not the things that are normal for all people everywhere in all times. My older brother was a missionary in Lebanon for about 15 years. He worked at a Christian school there. Uh, teaching and, and managing their networks, uh, computer networks and stuff like that. Um, and I, I remember sometime early on in his time over there, he was talking to me about the challenges of teaching in a different culture. He said one of the things that is interesting, in Lebanon there's three main people groups. There's, there's the Muslims, there's the Christians, and then there's like a cult religion called Druze uh, over there. And he said all, all of these three groups feel that uh, Cheating in school is okay. In, in their culture, if, if you are doing something to, to kind of get ahead, like cheating in school, oops, cheating in school, that's all right. So he'd have problems. Kids cheating on a test. 
He'd call up the parents and be like, hey, I, I hate to break it to you, but your son cheated on the test. And the parents are like, so what's the problem here? Why are you calling me? He was like, it's such a challenge because it's just different, right? We, uh, cheating is another thing that, you know, I, I wouldn't expect that I'd have to do a sermon on why cheating is wrong uh, on a test. Maybe cheating in board games. I might have to do a sermon about that, knowing some of you. But um, what we think is normal is not always normal for everybody everywhere. Now, part of the problem is that we have our own blind spots. It came up in our discussion on, on Tuesday in Bible study. If Paul was writing a letter to us, he might not include a line about stop stealing. But he might include other things to us. Things that we would be like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that we shouldn't be doing that. I had no idea. Because in our culture, it just seemed normal. We all have this collective blind spot. that eh, It's okay. God probably doesn't think that's a big deal at all. And Paul would be like, actually, he thinks it is a big deal. This week in our 40 days of fullness, we're moving on to the topic of prayer. And I thought, uh, I felt inspired to talk about uh, a normal prayer life. What would a normal prayer life look like? Uh, we do tend to define normal by our own experiences. Anyone who's ever uh, gotten married has realized just how abnormal they are, right? Sometimes it takes somebody else coming into your life and you trying to build a family and a life together to, to find out how abnormal you are. Um, and I'll spare my family, uh, me telling story after story about how abnormal we are <laughs> that I found out in being married. Um, but we don't know what we're missing. We don't know what somebody else, uh, what is normal for somebody else. We, we tend to build these things on our own experiences. Now, in my own experience, I grew up in a Christian home. In my own experience, a normal prayer life was, uh, there's two times that were pretty non-negotiable. One was meal times. We prayed before every meal. Any mealtime prayers out there? Anyone else pray before your meals? Uh, it was so normal to pray before a meal that still, if I sit down and start eating without praying, something just feels a little bit off. I do, I do do it from time to time. Uh, maybe it's a, a, you know, a big social gathering where everyone's walking through the line at different times or things like that. And I find myself sitting down to eat and something just feels a little funny about not doing it because it's normal to pray before a meal. It's abnormal to eat without praying. I don't, the food's going to turn to gravel in your mouth if you don't bless it, right? Um, we prayed at mealtimes. We prayed at bedtimes. Uh, I remember my mom used to uh, pray this prayer. She would, she would pray that God would cover us with his presence in the night. And, and I still can remember like being you know, a little boy laying in bed, and it was like that was the word that I needed to hear to, to go to bed at peace, like the idea of God covering me with his presence. I had a, a d disturbing experience when I was in upper elementary age, like fourth or fifth grade, uh, in children's church. And uh, if you think that a children's church program is loosey-goosey, let me tell you, the church I grew up in, it was, uh, it was utter chaos. Um, and so what someone had decided that day, they were nominated to teach children's church, fresh out of parole or something, and... Um, and they, they brought like this disturbing and scary, uh, I mean, it was before the Discovery Channel, but it was like a documentary, right? It was a documentary on UFOs. <laughs> this is what we're doing for Children's Church today. I got the fourth and fifth graders. I don't know what to do. I'm going to bring this scary UFO documentary. 
And I'm going to show it to him. And so we, we watched it. And I don't know particularly why. I think there was something spiritual in it. But like I was terrified. I couldn't fall asleep for like a week. And by the time I'm 10, 11 years old, it wasn't like mom was coming in to pray for me every single night. In fact, I shared a room with my twin brother and we would do bedtime prayers together as long as I could remember for years. Um, I get a little emotional thinking about that. Me and my twin brother praying together at night. Um, anyhow, like for a week, I can't sleep. Jason can't sleep either. And, and yet we don't even know how to talk about this awful thing that happened at children's church. <laughs> and so, um, eventually it all comes out like, yeah, we watched this scary documentary. I think I was worried that like I was going to get abducted by aliens or that the aliens were the Nephilim or something. And I just, I couldn't get out of my mind. And my mom came and prayed for us one night and she's like, God, cover them. And like, she said the word, cover them with your presence. And it was like, ah. Oh. I can finally go to sleep again without worrying about these nightmares. Um, you know, I never, I never found out. Maybe that person never got to teach children's church again. I don't know. Those conversations happened without me in the room. But I slept like a baby. Bedtime prayer is normal. Uh, my parents were missionaries for the first six years of my life. Another normal church uh, prayer experience for me was the prayer meeting at the house. And so we were living on the island of Cyprus. It was the hub of uh, ministry to the Arab, all of the Arab world for an organization called YWAM at the time. And so uh, um, for the last couple of years we were there, uh, our, our own house was kind of a hub for uh, meetings that these missionaries would have, and particularly prayer meetings. And so I don't know what we were supposed to be doing, maybe like watching Transformers in the next room or something like that. It was the only video we had that was in English. And so... Uh, we watched that. Let me tell you, I have watched the cartoon The Little Prince in Greek more times than anybody else in this room. Uh, and I still don't understand a word of it. But um, Anyhow, they would have these prayer meetings at our house. And the whole the living room would be filled with people praying. Uh, and, and you could feel the intensity in the room, especially if you were wandering in there to ask if it was okay, if you had a cookie or something like that. But uh, people would be kneeling and standing and pacing around, and they would do what we call popcorn-style prayer, where one person would speak out a prayer, and the, and the whole room is in agreement. Lots of amens and mm-hmm and yes, Lord. And I remember there was this one guy, I have no idea who he was, but he was one of the missionaries that hung out at our house. And, and he would kneel with his face buried in this armchair that we had in the living room, and he would just, like, kneel there, and I had this suspicion at one point that he would kneel there and sleep while everyone else was praying because his whole body was kind of buried into the couch and it looked comfortable to me. Um, anyhow, they would do this. That was actually similar, that popcorn prayer and everyone nodding in agreement. That was similar to a pre-service prayer that we had at the church I attended in elementary and, and into my early middle school years, uh, the, the one that had the real loosey-goosey children's program. Um, but they'd all sit in a room. A bunch of the elders and, and whoever wanted to would come to church an hour early. Can you imagine that? Coming to church an hour early. And they would sit in a room around a large conference table. And, and people would, it was popcorn prayer. You'd pop in with a corny prayer. That's how, you, that's how you do popcorn prayer. And, you know, whenever the Spirit sort of led someone, they would pray something out and, along a certain lines. And then other people would be in agreement. And maybe what they say would trigger something, inspire prayers. And we'd just go on like that for 45 minutes. Um, 
this this is a church that I ended up back in for uh, for my early adult years. I was actually a youth pastor there for almost five years. Um, but they had this other praying practice in the church. Uh, during our worship service, uh, they would have a, a ministry time where uh, the stage was built with sort of like carpeted benches around it. And people would all, if, if you needed prayer that Sunday, you would come and you would sit. And then and during the worship service, people would pray over you. It was, it was probably, in my experience, one of the most therapeutic in a church service moments I've ever been a part of. I know some of you were a part of that church. You would probably agree. There's times in my life that I think to myself, if only there was a way I could just sit down on the stage at Shekinah and just have some people come and pray for me. Like everything in my life, it was so therapeutic and so wonderful. Just a wonderful example of, of body ministry. Um, it was beautiful. In my middle and high school years, we attended a church that had a, a different kind of pre-service prayer. Uh, I don't know. I wonder if any of you have ever been a part of something like this. So an hour before church, uh, about half the church, the good Christians, would show up. And um, and we <laughs> we would pray uh, in the missionary circles. We call it Korean style. But it's everybody praying simultaneously at once. And so you imagine you walk into a room and there's 50 people there. And uh, and people are are singing their own song. He's singing a song over here. They're singing a song over there. There is a lot of loud praying in tongues happening. Uh, we are shouting. People are pacing. People are moving around. It is complete and utter chaos for like 45 minutes. And, uh, and, and you know, by the time church actually, actually started, after half the people had spent an hour in their morning doing that, we didn't even need a worship team, man. We just, people were ready to do church it was crazy. Now, this particular church met in my high school. And so uh, we would be fully, and I was fully engaged in this. You know, I'm, I'm like yabba dabba do over here. And people are praying over there. And it's my high school. And so let's say maybe like the wrestling team's coming back from a tournament. They're unloading the vans and the gear. They come walking through the cafeteria where we're doing this. And suddenly I'm aware of how not normal this behavior is. It's like, oh, hey guys, no, we're just, uh, we're just a super weird church over here. Um, yeah, that was, that was nuts. Um, you'd have these, uh, I have these memories of early mornings at my home. I'd get up and make myself breakfast and then make my lunch, uh, because we did all that for ourselves in the Dieter house. And, uh, and I can remember more often than not, I would come in and my parents would be sitting, at least one of them would be sitting in a recliner in our living room. Uh, this was back before recliners fell out of fashion on like all the HGTV shows. I am waiting for that to come back because then I'll be allowed to buy one. Uh, but you have this chair that's been designed to be the most comfortable chair in all of human history. And then you have all these people who are unwilling to buy it because, you know, the home decor gurus are like, that chair's ugly. It's, I don't care if it's ugly. I didn't buy it to look at it. I bought it to sit in it and to pray in it. I just want a comfortable chair to pray in. Uh, I haven't tried that angle. Maybe I should. Um, anyhow, my, my parents would be, one of them would be sitting in the chair just silently praying or reading their Bible. My dad had these spiral notebooks that he would write the things that he felt like God was saying to him uh, in the notebooks or different verses that stuck out in his mind. 
And uh, I would thumb through them from time to time just to try to get some insight into who he is. I, I, man, I really hope he, I hope he has those somewhere. It'd be fun to go through it all after he dies someday. Um, you know, just to feel connected to him still. It's a morbid thought. Um, let's broaden this out from my own personal experiences with prayer to uh, talk about other normal prayer stuff. So uh, Christian tradition holds that James, who was the brother of Jesus, one of the movers and shakers in the early church, uh, that his knees were as, as hard and calloused as a camel's. Uh, because all the time he was praying in the temple in Jerusalem, he was worshiping God, and the historians recorded, and he was asking for forgiveness for his people. In, in fact, there's a, a church leader named Hegesippus. Hegesippus, I said that right. Um, and he wrote, he wrote of James that he was holy from his mother's womb, he didn't drink wine or strong drink, nor did he even eat an animal. So vegetarian, Nazarite here. No razor came upon his head, never cut his hair. And he did not anoint himself with oil, and he did not treat himself with a bath. And you're all like, I was with it for the first part, but now I'm out. No bathing? Forget it. So holy, he never had to take a bath. And then he would be in the temple every day on his knees, praying for mercy on his people. And you can see that at, at one time, in that day, where you prayed was important. He was praying in the temple. The body posture that you had. He was kneeling. It didn't count as prayer unless you were getting calluses on your knees. He was kneeling before God. You can see that different things mattered at different times. For much of of Christian history, and it's kind of a holdover from Judaism, they had seven offices of prayer a day. So you prayed at 3 and 6 and 9 and 12, and then at 3 p.m. and 6 and 9, that's seven offices. And if you wanted to throw in the eighth office, you got up at midnight to pray as well. Almost 500 years ago, uh, a book of common prayer was published by the church in England. It was a guided prayer and scripture readings for every single day for five offices of prayer for the day. So uh, we went from five to seven. But the idea was all Christians are going to pause during their day to pray. This was what was considered normal in the church 500 years ago, at least in the Church of England and the, the circles that, that they ran in. Saying it's normal, maybe think of it this way. This was the thing that everyone would come together on Sunday and agree they'd all been doing all week long, whether they'd really been doing it or not. Like the assumption was, you guys are all doing this, right? Everyone's hitting the five offices of prayer a day. You can see at that time, it was super important. Not just when you prayed, but also what you prayed. It was so important what you pray that we wrote a book for you so you wouldn't say the wrong words. You just read that day's prayers and you go through it. These kinds of considerations aren't really things that I would put a ton of emphasis on today. You know, I'm tempted to say things like, look, it doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter where you do it. It doesn't matter when you do it. It just matters that you do it. You got to pray. God wants to spend time with you. And I think that's very true. And at the same time, 
we'll, we'll do really well to not completely disregard things that were important to the people of God at one time just because they haven't always been important in our own minds. I wonder if there's any value in, in being thoughtful or in being disciplined in where or how you pray or what kind of body position you embrace. I wonder if there's some value with that. I, I myself have been experimenting for the last couple of years with trying to hold to the offices of prayer, working through a prayer book, a modern version of the Book of Common Prayer. It's written by an author called Phyllis Tickle. It's called The Divine Hour. She actually has three different books, one for summer, one for fall, and uh, I think uh, winter and spring are maybe the same book. Um, just trying it, just trying to see if there's any value in uh, embracing this thing that Christians have done for a long time. We had another book on prayer that we read as a church leadership team somewhere in the first five years that we'd started. It's a book called Seeing is Believing. It's by a pastor, Greg Boyd. He pastors a church in Minnesota. Um, this was a book that talked about engaging your whole self, your whole mind in prayer, in connecting with the unseen God by grounding his presence in the inner reality of, of your mind through your imagination. I think most of you probably know, I know I mentioned it before, my, my educational background and, um, and, and really my interests are along the lines of social sciences. And so when I can read a, a spiritual book that's, that's talking about like psychology, then these are, these are my favorite books. And so this was a, a favorite book of mine. Um, but one of the points that it makes is that we experience our reality, our, our brain experiences our reality and our memories in the same way that our brain also experiences our imagination. In other words, it's the same neurons in your brain that are wiring, firing and wiring together when you experience reality, then when you remember reality, and when you engage your imagination on that same thing. This is part of the reason that if you've had a particularly traumatic experience, the thought of that experience can, can cause you to, can cause even in your body like a physiological response as if you're reliving that experience again. And so the idea of imaginative prayer is to try to harness the ability of our imagination, of our mind, to harness that into trying to connect to the things that we believe Scripture says are really true. This idea is, a, is kind of challenging to us in our culture because when I say the word imagination, probably in your own mind, you begin to think of things like fairy tales and stories and things that aren't true. We, we tend to utilize our imagination in this modern age, uh, at least if we think we're utilizing our imagination, it's because we're detaching from reality and just making stuff up. But when I say the word imagination, I'm actually talking about that mental process through which you do all kinds of creative, true things, like solving a problem at work or trying to navigate a relationship. Like it's the same part of your brain that is inventing solutions to real problems, real solutions to real problems. It's the same part of your brain that also will uh, invent a completely made-up story to entertain, uh, I don't know, a kid in your life or something. Um, so engaging our minds to connect with 
unseen realities in a meaningful way. For example, there might be a lot of things that are true about our gathering today, but what is most true about this gathering according to Scripture? What is something that we could just hang our hat on? You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, and I'll give you the answer right there. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Matthew 18. He says to them, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Say what you will about the way that we do church, right? The coffee's mediocre, the music's too loud, the pastor doesn't preach long enough, he's so great, I wish he would talk longer. Uh, Say what you will. Scripture says that Christ is present in our gathering today. That the most important person attended the service today is here in our midst right now. You think about the implications of that. It's like, huh, the, his attendance is the most important thing that could ever happen in one of our church gatherings or services. And yet I think because of how we engage with reality, because of cultural peculiarities that just exist in our modern age, Christ's attendance can be a real blind spot for us. How many of us go through the motions of attending church as if Jesus is not here with us? How many of us live our lives as if he's not here in our midst? Someone made a comment to me this week. I don't remember who it was or or what we were talking about. He was was talking about an article he'd he'd read about missionaries who, uh, you know, because in the broader world, the church in America is seen as a great success. And so people will travel to America to try to learn how can we be successful in church like them. They've got resources. They publish amazing content online. How can we be successful like that? And some people have visited the U.S. and gone away marveling at how much the church can accomplish, they'll say, without God in the center of it. The reality is, is that with our resources and our strategies, that we probably are in many ways a branch of Christendom that is far less reliant on God's presence and aware of God's God's presence. We're far less mindful of our need for Him which would remove us pretty far from what has been normal for Christians throughout the ages. People who were coming before God every single day saying, God, I need my daily bread today because I don't know where I'm going to eat if I don't get it. People who are living at the bottom of power structures in their society in the sort of way that makes you fully reliant on God, because you can't count on the powers that are around you to help you in any way. I think in so many ways, we're, we're incredibly blessed and fortunate to be living in a promised land of sorts, right? We live in a society that is affluent. Many of our needs are met all of the time. There's incredible safety nets all around us to catch us if we were to have a string of bad luck. 
But when this is your normal, you end up vulnerable to the very thing that God continually warned his people about before they went into the promised land. Be careful, because you're going to get into the good life, and my concern is you're going to forget me. You're going to forget who I am. You're going to say to yourself, it was the strength of my hand that won this land for us and earned this crop and did all this. And I start to see very much so the culture that, that I'm a part of, the tendencies that are in my own heart to forget how much we need God. So in the interest of trying to press into normal, I want you all just to take a moment to, to close your eyes. I want to practice embracing with our minds the reality that, that Christ is present in our gathering. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would quiet our minds. Open our hearts to hear your voice. Jesus, you said that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are here in our midst. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to somehow ground our minds into that reality. What does it mean that you are here? Where are you sitting in our midst? What did you wear to church today? What would you say to each of us if we were sitting next to you? God, we ask that you would help us to live connected to that reality. Each time that we gather, whether it's as a big group on Sundays or two or three of us gathering throughout the week, help us to really understand how present you are. In Jesus' name. This week, I, I asked an older and wiser pastor what, uh, what, thought, what they thought was the most important thing to share with people about prayer. Um, I was thinking in my own mind, oh, I'm preaching on prayer. I know I've talked about this before. I know I talk about this a lot. Uh, I need something fresh to say. Hey, maybe this guy will know, right? So I asked Mark Schmutz. He's a pastor at North Lake Baptist. He's, he's become a pretty good friend of mine in the last few years, and I love picking his brain about stuff because... He's one of the smartest guys I know, but um, he goes right into, oh, James, it's got to be about the, the two-way communication. It has to be about dialogue with God. And, and in my mind, I'm saying maybe what you're thinking right now, like, yes, yes, of course, of course. It's not about just saying the things that you want to say to God, but it's about making space to hear the things that God wants to say to you. Um, 
and I don't know, my mind gets bored with concepts that I've thought of before, right? And I need something to happen to shake it up because I'm going, no, look, Mark, I, I'm, I'm here asking you for this advice because I, I, want, I want something different. I would like to get up on Sunday morning and say something profound where people would say to themselves, wow, that was profound. James is really hearing the Lord this week. So, Mark, I need you to give me the scoop. Something I've never heard before. Um, <laughs> he didn't say anything more profound than that. It's about two-way communication. But as we start, as he started talking, something happened. It was like in his mind, he went to a place where it was suddenly the three of us talking, sitting at the table together, talking. He began to get a little bit emotional. And, and, uh, and, he, and he said, you know what, we... We have to, we have, we do this hoping that God will speak, hoping to connect with Him, hoping for dialogue and not just a monologue. He said, but, but we kind of have to do this by faith because we don't always experience the reality of His presence. And, and we know that the requests and the petitions and the, the asking, we, we know that th- we can do that part. I can ask God for anything any day of the week. But the part that isn't easy is listening to someone that you've never seen. He said, but when we lean into those opportunities to listen, he said, we really do get better at listening. We really do get better at hearing him. We really do experience on some level an inner subjective level in our mind, but we do experience what feels like his undeniable voice. I came away from that conversation thinking, I didn't know it, but what I really needed this week was someone a little older and wiser to tell me, hey, we really do get better at this over time. I don't have enough moments where I feel that God is really here with me. I don't have enough moments where I feel like I really hear his voice. And I'm so thankful that in those moments when I'm maybe feeling a little bit of doubt or feeling uninspired, that there's a church community around me who can encourage me and testify that, yeah, this really can get better with time. Don't give up on the discipline. It really can get better. I know I've told this story before. This is one of my all-time favorite anecdotes regarding prayer. It's from the the book called With by Skya Jathani. Uh, He writes that in the 1980s, Dan Rather was interviewing Mother Teresa. And and he asked her, he says, when you pray, what do you say to God? Mother Teresa replies, I don't say anything. I listen. So Dan Rather is a little perplexed. He says, okay, try this again. He says, well, when God speaks to you, what does he say? Mother Teresa says, he doesn't say anything. He listens. And I'm picturing Dan Rather's face perplexed as he you know, was the guy that read the news in my house growing up. Um, But then Mother Teresa adds, and she says, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. I'm going to one-up Mother Teresa right now. I'm going to explain that to you, all right? right? 
James is greater than Mother Teresa. What I learned at church today. One, I really think that, that maybe what is said during your prayer life isn't as important as what is heard during your prayer life. But on top of that, I really think that maybe what is heard during your prayer life isn't as important as learning the art of just listening and being together, the practice of spending time with someone. I forget exactly which class it was, but but one of the things that I learned in school that really stood out to me was that one of the marks of true human intimacy is to be comfortable with someone in silence. In other words, when you're around a stranger, you feel like you have to fill empty space with, with some small talk. You, do, you feel, an, and you maybe feel this if you're like in, a, in a, a waiting room with strangers and somebody says something and you say something back. You have, enough, you have enough interaction to now be like you're in it together and then you're like, I don't know what to talk about. And so if you're like me, uh, you end up oversharing because you're an extrovert and you want to get to know people. Um, but it's awkward. But when you're around close friends, when you're around family, those periods of silence are fine. You're comfortable with silence. To just be together is enough. I can remember, I mean, they're getting a little old for it, but I can remember some of my favorite moments in parenting was just like, you know, to to go and crawl into my daughter's bed and like a, a lazy Saturday morning and just lay there together quietly and just be together. What a wonderful feeling to just to just be together. I want my prayer life to feel like that. Where yes, there's things being said and yes, there's things being heard, but the most important part of it is just feeling that togetherness that unity with the Spirit of God. I want your prayer life to be like that too. I want to grow in this together. Because of that, uh, we're going to turn to the Lord's table and and we're going to have the worship team come back. Um, But we're going to do something a little bit different this time. Uh, when When we typically come to the Lord's table... Uh, I don't know how all of you do it, but in my mind, I'm imagining it. Well, I'm going to come up with uh, with my family or or maybe a friend. I'm going to tear off a piece of the bread, and then uh, and then usually we'll stand in a little circle, maybe off to the side, and one of us will pray a prayer, uh, thanking God for what He's done, and then we all receive the bread together. But um, I thought just a little twist on that today uh, to give you an opportunity to practice uh, praying would be uh, to come up with your family or a friend who's seated nearby. If you came to church by yourself today, uh, you know, let's be mindful of who around us is alone because this is going to be a group activity. But to come up with a, a group of people, uh, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. You're, you're holding, the, at that point, you're holding the, the visible material symbols of Christ's presence here in our midst, right? How beautiful is that, that we have this in the gathering every single week. And so, with Christ in your midst, I want every person in the group 
to just say a prayer, whatever is on their mind, like get out a sentence or at least three or four words. It could just be, thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice for me. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be elaborate. But I want everyone in the, oh, sorry, I skipped a part. I, first, everyone hold it and just stand silently in a circle together for like 30 seconds. Just wait. And after whoever wants to be the timekeeper in the group feels like 30 seconds has gone by, then you open it up saying a prayer, and then everybody in the group say a prayer. Take turns, popcorn, popcorn prayers, uh, thanking God for it, and then receiving uh, the elements of communion together, and, uh, and we'll call it a day, doing it that way. I kind of butchered the instructions for the assignment, but does everyone sort of get it? doesn't matter how you do it, it just matters that you do it, all right? Um, Father, we thank you so much that you long to meet with us. We thank you that, uh, that the eternal God has, has traveled infinitely far to join himself to humanity, to bind himself to our human experience and to meet us on our level. As we come today before the table that has been set with the body and the blood of Christ, we ask your spirit would again just show us how present you are. Pray that you would speak to the innermost part of us and invite us into the eternal realities that go unseen all too often. And as we just have a moment celebrating your sacrifice and your love, uh, we pray that you would take this moment and make it significant, that it would carry us into our week, a week full of experiences with you. In Jesus' name, amen. The table's been set. Um, we would just invite you to, to close our time today worshiping the Lord and receiving the body and the blood of Christ together.